Hello, welcome to the Theology Podcast, and uh, we're really glad to have you join us today. I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor of a church in the Pacific Northwest. I've written a few books, and I've been a real estate investor and a professor of philosophy. But enough about me. Uh, Tom, how about you? I'm Tom Price. I teach uh, theology, ethics, and apologetics at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Okay, and today is Glenn's Day. Glenn, introduce yourself and the subject, please. Okay, I am Glenn Sunshine. I'm a retired history professor, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and ministry associate at Reflections Ministries. And today I would like to introduce people to a a man by the name of Sabine Baring Gould. Um, He was a, well, I think rather than me trying to explain him, I'm going to use the words of Tony Esselin. Um, in December, uh, Tony's got this wonderful substack uh, called uh, Word and Song, uh, which I highly recommend. Um, but in December, w- one of the songs that he picked for the week was a Bosque carol called The Angel Gabriel uh, from Heaven Came Down. And this is how he introduces it. The man who translated our hymn of the week could only have lived in the 19th century. Certainly, we don't produce anybody like Sabine Baring Gould anymore. You must imagine an Anglican priest, happily married, with 15 children. (laughs) Already, I doubt if there's anybody in the world who qualifies. (laughs) Then he must be a prolific novelist and writer of short stories. He must be an archaeologist and antiquarian of international repute. He must be a tireless collector of folklore and a publisher and arranger of folk music. He must be a biographer of Napoleon, of all people, but also of many saints, a writer and publisher of sermons, an amateur painter and iron worker, and an officiato of many languages, ancient and medieval and modern. Phew. Then imagine the following conversation. They say there's an excellent hymn on the Annunciation that we ought to be singing in English, but nobody's translated it. Nobody? Why not? It's in Bosque. Oh, dear. Bosque. For Bosque, as you may know, is an Indo-European language. The hymn might as well have been written in Vietnamese or Algonquin. (laughs) I guess we'll have to do without it then. Now, I want you to think of Gollum's voice here. Or we could have Sabine do it. (laughs) (laughs) Sabine? Sabine can read Bosque? Well, if he can't do it now, he'll do it for the hymn. (laughs) Okay. Sabine Baring Gould. Um, The thing he was most proud of in his career was a collection of folk songs from Cornwall and Wales in Western, you know, Western Great Britain. Mm -hmm. Um, Massive collection. Um, But he, as he says, was a novelist. He wrote short stories. They don't mention he was a travel writer. Um, He wrote ghost and horror stories. Um, Mm -hmm. H.P. Lovecraft, actually, we know, read him. As a matter of fact, the book he cited is this one right here. I have an 1897 edition of it. Mm. Uh, It was originally published in two volumes. This is the single volume. It's called Curious Myths of the Middle Ages. We know Lovecraft read it. He he actually refers to it. Um, Some of his writings probably influenced his friend George Bernard Shaw in writing Pygmalion, which then becomes My Fair Lady. Yeah. Um, You know, uh, at one point, the British Library had more titles by Zabine Baring Gould in it than of any other English author. He published over 1,300 pieces. 
Yeah. Uh, along with that, he is one of the early people doing serious scientific archaeology in parts of Britain. Um, he was very interested in folklore. Um, in fact, uh, in my somewhat infamous class, which is Werewolves and Vampires, I used the Book of Werewolves, written by Sabine Baringold. This is a new edition, obviously. Um, and th that's still a standard reference for people who want to study werewolves. In fact, we know that influenced Bram Stoker. Yeah. He had a yeah. copy of it and annotated it and used it in Dracula. Wow. Hmm. wow. Um, but he is probably best known today, indirectly, people don't actually have his name attached to it, as a hymn writer. Yeah. He is the guy who wrote the words to Onward Christian Soldiers. Yeah, yeah. Which he wrote for a, you know, it was supposed to be a children's processional little thing that that yeah. he just sort of dashed off. And then Arthur <laughs> Sullivan wrote the the music for it. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, the the guy is the guy is incredibly wide ranging, incredibly prolific. Um, oh, I should mention, speaking of prolific, fifteen children, yeah. um, fourteen of whom made it to adulthood. Um, he married a woman half his age. He met her. She was the daughter of a miller. He paid for her education. And after she was educated, he married her. They were <laughs> married for 48 years and had 15 kids. Yeah. Um, yeah. She predeceased him. And on his, her tombstone, um, he wrote, the Latin translates to half my soul, although we usually translate it my better half. Right, right. Yeah, this guy is a fascinating figure. At the same time, uh, even though he's so accomplished, I don't know if most folks have heard of him. Yeah, that's right. And by the way, um, I, the actual disclaimer I have to put in, uh, he did write at least one work on theology that is actually still available on Amazon um, in which, uh, well, uh, he attempted to refute Calvinism. <laughs> we, we need to we need to get that out there right right um although i think the book of werewolves makes up for that to some extent um, he actually collected a number of his short stories together in the book of ghosts you're right so that that's there too well you know another thing about this this fellow beside you know his uh um you know work on you know the refutation of calvinism <laughs> is uh <laughs> His breadth, as you've noted, I mean, th this kind of Catholicity in terms of taste uh, and um, really achievement is, is something to really think a little bit about. I know you want to get into it, but, but why is it that, you know, you and, and this is what Tony brings out. You know, he, he could only have lived in the 19th century. And, and furthermore, he had interesting friends, George Bernard Shaw. I mean, really, <laughs> you yep. know, that kind of friend and you're, and you're a cleric and you're Orthodox and you're a translator. Well, you're a writer of hymns like onward Christian soldiers, for goodness sake, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, that's, this is just a fascinating, fascinating guy. Yeah. Well, let, let's add that as a cleric, he decided young, he was, he was from a, um, a noble family. Right. And he decided young that he wanted to go into the church. <clears throat> he took a couple of um, of uh, parishes, but then he inherited the family estate. So in, in English terms, he became the squire. Right. Mm -hmm. And as squire, he had the authority to appoint 
the priest, the vicar in the local church. So he appointed himself <laughs> where he spent the rest of his career. Right, yeah. right. Um, well, if, but he's got travelogues on the Pyrenees. He's got, I mean, it, 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 it's the, the range of this guy's work is just absolutely insane. Yeah. But if he ever fired himself, that might be because he's just so, you know, he's got so many different personalities that maybe he would be angry at himself. And, and uh, anyway, you get my joke. <laughs> but um, yeah, this is great stuff. Yeah. And oddly enough, as you say, he's not very well known. The only biography I've been able to find of him is written by somebody who clearly did not understand the man. Okay. He he do, he doesn't seem to have had any sympathy for him at all. He didn't yeah. like Victorian culture, you know, yeah. on and on and on. It was just, you know, apparently <clears throat> it was nearly a hatchet job. All the guy did is give a chronology of his life and didn't really show any evidence of having interacted with any of his writings or anything like that. So I, I find this baffling. Hmm. So how long ago did that, did that biography come out? The bad one. Um, it's actually fairly recent. I found it on Amazon. Okay. Um, and there was somebody else who was working on a biography of, of Baron Gould, uh, who commented on it and sort of said, all right, this, this guy really does not know what he's doing. And he's, you know, as a biographer, you can't, you you can't be an effective biographer if you don't have at least some sympathy for the target of your biography. Right, right. Subject, well, not target. Right, right. So in this case, it might have been a target. Right. Well, you you noted early on, uh, and Tony did too, that this this uh, person could have only you know only lived in the nineteenth century. Why is that? What is it about the nineteenth century that makes this kind of person even conceivable? Well, I think there are a couple of things. Arguably, you could say 18th century, because people in the Enlightenment, um, the educated people, the philosophers and those guys, were very, very widely read and uh, had expertise in a wide range of of areas. You know, you can look at somebody like, um, oh, uh, one of the encyclopedists, Diderot. Uh, Diderot was a mathematician, but he also wrote treatises on philosophy. If I remember right, he did literary criticism as well. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you have people in the 18th century who have this kind of range of thinking. But they are also very much constrained by the tastes of their period. The emphasis on reason, the emphasis mm-hmm. on, um, on, uh, on logic, on rationality, and on, on empiricism, those kinds of things. When you get into the 19th century... You have an interesting thing that happens. In a sense, it almost bifurcates. You've got some of them who take that uh, Enlightenment rationalism and turn it into scientism. Mm -hmm. But you also have the rise of Romanticism with its interest in the Middle Ages, with its interest in folklore, with its interest in all of these kinds of things. You also see the rise at the same period of people who are interested in the social sciences. The beginnings Mm -hmm. of the social sciences occur during this period. So what happens in the 19th century is you still have enough classical education in place for someone to be familiar with Latin and Greek and, and, and these other mm-hmm. things. But you've got an interest in, in medievalism. You've got an interest in science. You've got an interest in social science. All of these things are present. Right. And Sabine Baring Gould was able to tap into 
as you said, really Catholicity of interest. He was able to tap into all of these things, to work in all of these different areas in a way that really wouldn't have been possible in the Enlightenment yeah. and has yeah. become impossible in the 20th century. Yeah, yeah. It seems as though the, the bifurcation between, say, Enlightenment rationality, which is very, uh, I guess, astringent and dry, and then Romanticism, which was emotive, uh, you know, it's sort of rich and evocative, you know, in terms of drawing on experience and, you know, uh, sort of the natural affections and stuff. Those things have kind of completely, you know, separated and uh, don't seem to ha be held together by anybody anymore. Well, and, and I think you have, especially um, in, in England at the time, I mean, you, do, you still have a lot of spillover from the, the, the continental academic influence. I mean, Germany in particular at this time, mm -hmm. and of course France. Um, and and you, I, I'm thinking, I don't, I don't remember the date-wise, date but I'd be curious how his, his fascination with f the folk material, um, it, because I know Herder's work, uh, out of Germany, who influenced Dilthey, the whole hermeneutical movement led to Schleiermacher. I mean, you get this whole train, but the whole emphasis then was this turn to, um, from the Romantic influence, kind of this turn to, you know, the, the folk element, the the personal narratives of a people. And it, it and I think naturally, in, in like Glenn mentioned, where you have the polarization starting to develop between a strict kind of um, rationalism or empiricism that is tending towards scientism. This is where you started to have, you know, this move toward, you know, away from just kind of Wissenschaft uh, in, in Germany towards this, you know, towards the spirited sciences, if you, you will. You better translate Wissenschaft. Um, well, well, I think the best way of, of talking about it is kind of the hard science as we know it versus, and that became sort of a standard and model for all sciences and the, the Romantic Rebellion was, no, the, 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 you know, that loses the spirited element of humanity, the humaneness of it. And so that you get, then you get, you know, these reactionary movements. Um, and, and um, yeah, I got a bunch of German words now floating <laughs> in my head. <laughs> I, I, think, I think one of the ways to kind of uh, visualize this is yeah. it's, it's, you think about 19th century architecture, you have kind of a, a, a neoclassical uh, movement in the early part of the 19th century. And then toward the end of the 19th century, you've got, you know, the Gothic. Uh, and they both kind of exist, coexist, you know, sometimes in the same town green. <laughs> yeah. You know, you go to these different places and, you'll, and you can see uh, kind of the, the shift uh, to, from sort of the, the open, light-filled classical world to the sort of the shadowy um uh, you know, uh, ghost haunted medieval yeah. world, uh, in the popular imagination even. And, and a lot of people, I think, tried to hold all that together. And I think this is something we see maybe with Sabine. He's a guy who's able to, in his own person span, you know, I, I think one of the reasons why we love say Sherlock Holmes or, uh, you know, Charles Dickens is, you know, their, their stories, uh, you know, are evocative of this period. And I, and I think even like uh, uh, the steampunk movement, you know, in science fiction is, is this sort of thing too. There's this 
uh, interest in, you know, scientific rationality, but at the same time, a, a kind of gritty industrial, but also um, almost medieval, uh, I guess, aesthetic uh, at, at work in all of it. Yeah. Uh, for those who don't know what steampunk is, think about Jules Verne. Yeah. Um, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, all of those kinds of things where he imagines 19th century technology used in high tech ways. Yeah. Or, or that, that's essentially the core idea of steampunk. You know, imagine if yeah. you could harness steam power to do and what they knew then to do all of this stuff. So you have this really a Victorian aesthetic but with all kinds of mechanisms and things like that worked into it. Yeah, another one, it would be Wild Wild West. Do you remember that in yep. the 60s? That was, yep. a, that, that was a mind-blowing television show because you had kind of a James Bond element, an Old West element, and a, and a, and a super science element, you know, where you had you know, 19th century mad scientists who had invented atomic weapons and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, if you want a more recent one, um, I, I would suggest you look at uh, The Adventures of Briscoe County, Jr. Oh, I don't know about <laughs> you will, that. Right. You will recognize the music. The theme song of it has since been picked up to be used in the Olympics. Yeah. Um, however, it, it stars Bruce Campbell, which should tell you everything you need to know about it. <laughs> um, it, it, it's a truly, it, it's funny and really bizarre show. Um, uh, definitely worth checking out. Okay. Um, you know, so you, you get these two guys who walk into a saloon and they sit down at the table and a waiter <laughs> comes up to him and says, hello, I'm Todd. I'll be your waiter today. And it just sort of goes on from there. Um, you know, so yeah, it's the, uh, it's not exactly steampunk, but it, it, it incorporates several of those kinds of elements. It, it, well, it, it, it's curious. So you're backing up a little bit to your, your, your previous point. It's curious at this time because we're talking, okay, you've already had the sort of 17th, 18th century, the move towards experimental science, which radically changes. Really, you talk about, you know, an advanced disenchantment of, mm -hmm. you know, the taking away the symbolical realism of previous kind of Christian Platonism and, and the like. Um, and what do I mean by that? Really, that the, that the creation is filled with signs, uh, transcendent signs in which the creator, um, you know, is kind of related to in, in profound ways, like classic Christianity tended to hold. Then you also have the, you know, kind of certain strands of the Reformation, which, which have what kind of John Milbank will call a, a kind of... Um, disenchanted transcendence, right? In which they, they were unhappy with that symbolical world. So they, they had a, a stronger affinity to some of the scientism that was developing because of the emphasis on the empirical. The only difference with the science would be more toward, towards an immanentized view of things that all of reality is basically in the material, whereas the kind of certain strands of, of reformation, you'd still have it in the creator. But the creator relation to creation is becoming more external, which leads eventually to deism in, in some of its disturbing forms. Um, so what you have here, though, is that romantic reaction on one hand, which I think wants to retrieve a lot of that symbolical realism of, of cla the classical world. And so it comes in an imminentized form through the romantics. Um, but I think there's also some strands and echoes in the various kinds of like Cambridge Platonism, 
and the different kind of Platonists that really were impacting the church, it, it was a desire for the church somehow to speak of these elements that had been lost or eclipsed during this time. And so you can see why a figure like this could see the benefits of, of the Enlightenment and its range and emphasis on learning, education, and, and so broad, but also be fascinated by those things that tended to get locked out, even in Reformation uh, and Protestant emphasis, the werewolves, the ghosts, the folk element, and the like. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think that um, given his, uh, again, one of the key things to my mind is not just do you have all these various cultural elements at work, but you have an educational system that lets you do this, yeah. that prepares you to yeah. do this kind of of um, of work. Um, mm. Teaches you the languages, teaches you history, teaches you classical literature, teaches you, you know, all of these kinds of things just simply as a matter of course. You know, these yeah. are things that the scientists learned too. It wasn't right. specialized the way it is now. Well, this, there's another feature to this which is fun, and Nicholas uh, Taleb some Nicholas Taleb, the author of The Black Swan and, and uh, Antifragile and so forth, he, he uh, is a real admirer of 19th century uh, English clerics. And uh, it's fun because, I mean, he's from the Levant. I mean, he's, he's an Orthodox Christian. He's not actually, uh, you know, from England. He's not, he's not Anglophile in the, in the normal sense, you know, that we that we think of, you know, when we think of Anglophiles, people who were into, you know, uh, well, all, you know, all things English. He, he, he more or less just is fascinated by this, by this phenomenon where you have all these English clerics who are amateur scientists who are actually, you know, like they've got like chemistry uh, labs in their, in their, in their mansions, you know, <laughs> and, you know, and, you know, and they're, they're working on stuff and writing, uh, for theological journals, but also scientific journals. And, you know, they're, they're calling up to their, to, to the, to the lady who, who manages their kitchen for more tea <laughs> or for Sherry. Well, there's, well, they're seeing a, an experiment bubbling away and they're, and they're writing down the, the results. You know, I had a friend in Paris who told me he was a, he was a professor at the university of Leicester. He told me that the, Beauty of being an Anglican is you didn't actually have to do anything. <laughs> in other words, you get you, you show you get your kids baptized, you show up at church, you get married in church, you die and get buried in the church, and you're you're good. So under those circumstances, it it kind of I suppose now the funny thing is that guy later became an Anglican priest. <laughs> um, you know, God God sort of said, um, Richard. You need you, you need to step up your game here, which which I thought was absolutely delightful. But but the the um, the the point is that for a lot of people in England, religion in this period was was formal, right. and if that's primarily what it is, it does kind of free you up as the vicar to do all kinds of other stuff. Yeah. So. But he, but he was engaged in, uh, you know, hagiography and uh, mm -hmm. hymn yep. writing. So it wasn't as though uh, this was just, you know, uh, a source of income for him and his real interests yeah. were, you know, filial, philological or something. Yeah. Well, no, actually, that, that is emphatically true. He wanted to go into the clergy. He felt called to the clergy yeah. from actually a pretty young age. Yeah. Um, 
and he he actually wrote what is it six volumes of saints lives something like that yeah um and he does hymns and he is certainly carrying out his parish responsibilities right right well it, it's interesting i mean the, the feel for life i mean i remember as a student in oxford and in the feel for life when wrapped around kind of your your kind of core duties, responsibilities and stuff. I mean, I was very close to the church life there because I was studying theology there. And you can see how, you know, I mean, it's ordered. It is ordered. I mean, that's Glenn's point is right on the money. It's ordered. But in the other hand, that ordering is it is something that people are passionately invested in. Um, it is, you know, you have even I mean, I don't know when, you know, all these, you know, the particular time you know, that, that, uh, he was, you know, serving, you know, the kind of order and formality and how much he had to do. But I mean, it was a very disciplined life, but then that discipline gave so much space and time to other things. And I think part of that discipline's formation is that you can do a lot of things. I remember as a student then, because I had the, I'd work on languages in the morning. I had the, you know, practice German and I was doing Latin, just to keep up with theological material. But it was easy to jump over to learning French and other languages because you're already in the disposition of learning and working with languages. And then you're around people, I know in Oxford context, that are working on, I knew a guy from Russia working on 14, 15 different languages at once, and he was deaf. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, I had to work with a, with a hearing aid. I mean, so, so you can see how a kind of form of life wrapped up with the right kind of discipline, focus, and environment can really um, be inspiring. I mean, think of a, a you know more popular example. Think of Bob Dylan's writing in the '60s. I mean, Bob Dylan could never write that folk music now. He, he never could. He was around you know Pete Seeger. He was around. He was in a context of of creative flourishing. And he was disciplined with the you know the the atmosphere and you know what was it the uh, east side of New York and certain contexts that really helped foster a kind of, you know, it, it, a creative element, an imaginative element that, that I think um, certain, like you said, educational formats sustain. Well, there was still enough American folk life, yeah. you, you know, uh, folk culture that yeah. uh, I remember watching a documentary uh, that was produced by a Jewish guy from Brooklyn about clogging in Appalachia. <laughs> Which so he, he goes down to Appalachia to, because he's he loves the music he he he's yeah. listening because so you know he's listening in Brooklyn to country music I mean not genuine country music you know old mountain you know yeah. music uh, and falls in love old with tiny it. old yeah. tiny music he falls in love with it and goes down and uh, he's just taken with uh, you know these old timers who whose whose own memories go back to you know, yeah. almost to the civil war in the sense that, you know, they were the children of the, of the, of the soldiers who fought in that war, you know? So, and, and many of them had grown up, you know, in, you know, poverty, like we can't imagine today without running water and et cetera. Yeah. And, and they just were, their, their music had a different character. You, you know, people try yeah. to emulate it today, but it, it's not coming out of, it's not uh, springing out of the roots of the experience like that music did, which why it was so authentic. It just had a, it had a, an emotional power that yeah. people, you know, like Bella Fleck, who's awesome, you know, and stuff yeah. like that. But it's, but his, his banjo is not that their banjo. Yeah. It's not, <laughs> it, 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 yeah. 
And it's interesting because I think this time period is where, like you talk about, you know, this the figure we're talking about, that, that tapping into folk music and the tapping into folk stories. Um, there was a recognition happening because, especially because of like this strong turn to scientism that is developing. I mean, I think you're, uh, you're right as well as this is still a period where you probably can still see science as a part of natural philosophy. And you still have it tied to a, a theology and a metaphysics, which it didn't have to go the radical kind of you know, path that it went. And I imagine there were people in his parish who really did believe in fairies and werewolves. In other words, it wasn't yeah, just yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. a bunch of you know, educated, uh, you know, gen- genteel people. There were probably yeah. people that he was ministering to who were pretty... Uh, you know, traditionalist, traditional in their in the way they looked at the world. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what we're getting at here, I think, to you know, to to try to tie some of this together, is we have a, a larger cultural context where there is a kind of ferment going on between romanticism and scientism, the emerging social sciences, uh, the fact that traditional culture is still alive and well. Um, the very fact that he's collecting folk music, you know, point, points in that direction. Um, combined with a guy who seems to have had a really solid faith, even if his theology may have been off here and there. Um, <laughs> um, he, uh, you know, the, the, so you've got this huge cultural context. You, you also have a kind of education that gives you the skills and the mental flexibility that you need um, in order to f- to move freely through all of these different things, you have the tradition of the you know the grand tour uh, across Europe, so that he he's in a situation where writing travelogues is a yeah. perfectly normal thing. It, it's a, it's a culture that is much less narrow, and an education that's much less narrow than ours that really tries to homogenize everything. Yeah, yeah and, and you've got an early kind of industrialism in which goods and um, uh, are coming to, the, to market in uh, greater abundance than in the, yeah. you know, in the past. So it's kind of a sweet spot, you could say, in a lot of respects. So one of the things that I've seen as someone who's been involved in construction is that they're really, in terms of the the physical, I guess, uh, bones of a house, not taking into consideration plumbing and electrical, you know, wiring and that kind of thing, but just the physical bones of a house. The sweet spot in terms of uh, home building uh, for for the masses was post Civil War. Uh, kind of gilded age up until the uh, 1930s. You had you had a lot of guys who were real craftsmen who were still building houses, and they were working with hand tools. They were not working with power tools. You know, they, everything was hand sawn, everything was hand hammered, uh, everything was hand drilled, uh, all that kind of stuff. And so there was a lot of physical uh, strength that was required, but also a kind of touch. And, and, and a sense of, uh, you know, for, for another way to think about it is, you know, the, the, the lumber that they were using was different. It was not fast growth stuff like you see today, but old growth, tight grain, 
Uh, yeah. You know, four. actual dimensions of two by four was actually two by four. Right. <laughs> Which in one of those houses creates all kinds of problems if you have to update anything. Right. right. Uh, but, our, our, house, our house in Connecticut was built out of American chestnut. Oh, wow. wow. Uh, the house I grew up in New, in New Jersey, I don't know what the wood was, but we did some, uh, some, you know, opening up some spaces between rooms and things like that. And we discovered that at every joist, they had, I think it was six large nails toenailed in in every direction. Yeah. That house was built to withstand nuclear attack. <laughs> That's right. and, it, and what's remarkable about it is that it was built before nuclear weapons. Yeah. Yeah. But but the, the, the quality of the materials, the attention to detail and the desire to build something that is going to last. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, you know, the arts and crafts movement at the turn of the century, you know, 19th, 20th century is another kind of feature to this. Um, so, you know, we're, is, I guess the, the, what I'm getting at is, is, is this a lost world? Is it possible for any, you know, the fact that Tony says this guy had to live in the 19th century, he lived in that kind of sweet spot, you know, intellectually as well as yeah. socially, uh, that made it possible for him to have the breath that he had. Is it is it even something that we should aspire to today, uh, or you know, or is it just gone? Yeah, it, that that raises the, the a question that we've talked about before: uh, whether it's possible to go back, or if we have to go forward. Mm -hmm. You know, we cannot reconstruct, and we wouldn't really want to reconstruct yeah. the nineteenth century world. Um, Sure. The, you know, Sabine Baring Gould participated in a bunch of the uh, prejudices of his era. You know, he's he's not he's not a paragon of virtue by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> and and you know, so we don't really want to go back to it. On the other hand, there might be a way I think of recovering some of the the good of the period, just like we've talked about with, with uh, the medieval worldview. There's, there, yeah. there's tremendous flaws in it, but there's also tremendous strength in many parts of it. Yeah. I think the same thing can be said in terms of the 19th century, uh, in terms of the ideals and values and things like that. And even to some extent with things like the, the, uh, the classical Christian school movement, the uh, uh, great books programs in universities, which are starting to make a comeback. You know, um, the fact that so many people in the, that have gone through these things are so enamored with Lewis and Tolkien and their sources. All yeah. of these things point to the hope of a kind of recovery yeah. of some of this in at least some sectors of society. Yeah. The biggest problem we've got in education right now, well, one of several, um, I would say the biggest problem we've got is that it's turned into indoctrination. But along yeah. with that, in terms of the curriculum, there's high levels of specialization. Right. You know, yeah. and the the lack of the lack of a vision of creating an education whose primary function is to teach you how to think yeah. and to think humanely <clears throat> is, yeah. I think, a major loss. But there are movements toward recovering this. And, you know, so there, there is a degree of hope. And I think, I think it's worth doing. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I think that I mean, I mean, similarly, we talk about it in theology, retrieval movements, um, retrieval mm-hmm. movements are not repristinization. They're not romanticized visions that the past somehow had it all together and that we somehow don't. Um, even when I talk about the way in which the church worked up to a kind of theological consensus that has been broken, you can't simply go back. You can't. You can't do it because we aren't the conditions in place that they had. Um, but what you can do is take the riches and wisdom that have been given from by the Spirit's work in the church across time. It's the same thing you do is sort of in honoring your father and mother. I mean, this is how even Carl, a figure like Karl Barth would say, you listen to the earlier teachers of the church, not because they're infallible, because you're honoring your parents in the faith, right? There's a way in which you're that. But there is a point at which you have to, as a responsible agent before God, go your own way, if you will. And, and this is a period at which the church has to go its own way, being formed and shaped by the best wisdom that it can under the fuller illumination of Scripture, of course, but also on the on those levels, and this is where we get to the kind of the regular humane and the regular sciences, the best wisdom from all of that, right? Um, if we are going to just jettison that and ignore it because, oh, certain figures may not have even believed, right? Um, and yet they still could figure out how maybe gravity works, right? It would be foolish of us to say we shouldn't learn how gravity works just because the person who actually happened to figure it out may not have been a believer, right? So, I mean, I think there is a, there is a lot of that in which um, all learning that has to do with things that are true and things that are wise um, is something we can draw upon as we kind of try to draw from that wellspring of rich insight to actually illumine our moment and shed light on it and have a direction that isn't arbitrary and isn't really by the fad or the moment. I think it really helps anchor us. Yeah, I think maybe a, a model of this, and I mentioned it a minute ago with the Arts and Crafts movement, I, I, was, I was getting at John Ruskin and yeah. his, his attempt to... Um, mm-hmm work with the industrial revolution in one respect, but correct it in another. So his, his concern, uh, wasn't, uh, let's, or his objective objective wasn't, uh, let's go back, uh, and just do everything the way it was done in the past, but let's try to bring forward into the, into the present, some of the best aspects of the past and find ways of, uh, getting the boat, the best out of, uh, both the industrial process and, um, you know, high craftsmanship. And that's why you, you really did for a period of time, really have uh, really well-made homes for regular people. Yeah. Like uh, my, my second son owns a home that was built in 1928. That is more solid than the home that I own. Uh, that's only about five miles away from his that was built in 2001. You open yeah. up the walls in his place yeah. And it's a whole different experience <laughs> than yeah. when you open yeah. up the walls in my place. Uh, yeah. So what happened uh, by the you know 21st century is you had a situation where the factory approach had just completely swallowed up craftsmanship. And the only people yeah. who can afford really good craftsmen today, people like you know Jack Bumgartner, the only people who can afford yeah. people like him are the super yeah. wealthy. But yeah. there was a period of time where there were the really solid craftsmen were so numerous that they were actually yeah. building homes for regular people. And the homes yeah. reflected that. 
I, re- I remember as a kid visiting my grandmother in Fitchburg, Massachusetts, and she she at this time was I mean she was her her husband and my grandfather had already passed away. She was just renting a third level in one of those three level in the New England homes. But I remember as a kid playing in the stairwell that was spiraled and hand carved wood. And as a child, we loved, of course, playing on it. <laughs> but I was blown away that you had this kind of aesthetic. Right. In this play, we didn't have this in Virginia. We, you know, nothing I was familiar with. I'm sure. I'm sure in, in Richmond we did, but we didn't have it where you know in our kind of suburban neighborhoods. And and it was there was a, it, it captivated me even as a child that this something's different here yeah. with the investment in this hallway to let people into their various floors. And and it was it was really stu- it's stunning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that was, of course, uh, like I said, uh, possible because of the industrial revolution. But you still had yeah. all these high, uh, you know, character and high ability craftsmen, uh, yeah. you know, that were, you know, working with, with things. Anyway, yeah. but but when it comes to you know Sabine, I mean, uh, how is how do we how do we foster the kind of scholarship that we see with him? So, hmm. you know. We're connected to scholars. Um, You know, are are there any people that come to mind uh, that you've been around that are even close to this guy um, (laughs) in terms of their range? Um, Short answer, no. (laughs) Um, The closest that I can get um, are probably people in English departments who are traditionally taught. Yeah. That is to say, who don't just learn modern literature, but who read Old English and Middle English and who learn their Latin and Greek and Italian and French and German. Um, these are people, Tony Esselin is a great example. These are yeah. people who have a range and breadth of knowledge. And I really get the sense that there there is more of a connection between them and this sort of tradition that we see in the 19th century than you get with with uh, scholars who follow a more modern curriculum, right? Yeah, yeah maybe they're, right. they're about the only people that come to mind. And you know, I'm a historian. I hate to give the credit to the English departments, but <laughs> frankly, yeah. a, a, a traditionally trained English professor is, you know, is going to do really well in these areas. But how how many of those guys are still around? Uh, everybody in the English departments that I've been acquainted with have been completely co opted by kind of uh, postmodern uh, yeah. ideology. Uh, Roger Scruton comes to mind. Roger Scruton, you know. Yep. Uh, He'd be a good one. Yeah. Yeah, there, there, may be, there may be people in other areas, but the ones that I think of first, I mean, I studied Homer in Greek at Michigan State with a professor yeah. in the English department, not in the classics department, because he was the best Homericist at the university. Yeah. Quirky guy. I'm telling you, but, <laughs> but he, but he, he, you know, he knew his Homer really well, um, was conversant in a whole bunch of other languages and so on. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I, 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 similarly, I mean, when I, where I bumped into it a lot, I, I saw a lot of the, the passion for that kind of broader, but, um, disciplined education from a lot of people that came out of communist countries who mm. had a value for learning but they had a lot of holes in their knowledge that they recognized, and they had such a thirst that they were the ones learning the 14 languages, and they were the ones that not only did they excel in art history and Byzantine art world, but they were reading literature from every country in the world. 
in the um, original languages. In the original languages, and then and they were discussing it, and they could talk this stuff. I, I met similar people uh, from Greece, but also a lot of the uh, kind of Latin American, like the Argentinian writers, especially in the literary dimensions. Of, of, think of a figure like Boris. Um, this guy can can write article. I mean, write essays in 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 kind of um, on Avicenna on philosophy, medieval thinkers, you know, similar to, uh, you know, uh, Umberto Eco. I mean, these kind of lettered people, um, they're kind of the rare breeds, uh, you know, that that kind of still hover around that kind of, um, you know, they, they'll, they'll read Pythagoras in the original, <laughs> whatever they can get their hands on, and then kind of find a way to creatively bring that insight into a, an essay. Yeah. Maybe maybe what's required is this kind of carryover of the, I guess the the aristocracy that you still find kind of the kind of the vestiges of in certain places, Uh, like when you think of Umberto Eco, uh, you know he was somebody who who came to mind for me. There and what you what you have with those people is a kind of insouciance when it comes to the modernity. You know, they they understand what the modern project is, but they they know yeah. more uh, than yeah. most people who are caught up in it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I'm, re- I'm reading right. Augusto del Noce right now, and, and oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Just uh, <laughs> uh, just re- his uh, range uh, is <laughs> fabulous. Uh, he knows Marx better than Marx knew himself. Yeah. You know, and uh, but and he and, and Donolce was very aware of the metaphysical implications. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is this is rare in philosophical circles. Right. But you have to yeah. you have to get, you know, these old uh, Italian dudes, <laughs> these, <laughs> these old French guys. Is it is it even uh, the case that you can find these people in Germany anymore? Um, maybe uh, they're gone there. Maybe the, the Germans they, have been so caught up in this stuff. I don't know. I don't, yeah, I don't I, see much now. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I immediately went, when you ask if it's still there, my, my immediate thought was the American context, but I find it really interesting that pretty much everybody you guys named is from overseas. Yeah. 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 And I, th- I think those universities are moving in, in a similar direction to ours. Yeah. But the tendency that we have, here's the problem. We've got this tendency towards specialization and specialization early. We we live in a world that is so technical on so many different levels that you know it, I suppose on one level it's understandable that you know you want to you want to get out you want to get ahead you want to get the best education you can in your subject and so you're going to get narrower and narrower focus to get to get that without getting the range and breadth of things um, students don't understand actually I think most of my colleagues don't understand. Uh, former colleagues, what general education is supposed to be for. Right. And they keep cutting the core of general education down, although there's actually a movement away from that. But even still, you know, it's a smorgasbord. You you pick one history, you pick two English, one a writing course, one a literature course. Uh, you pick one social science, you know, whatever, whatever's list of things you have to take. And the problem is there's no coherence in it. Well, and that... that- trend began in the ivies you know uh you know mm-hmm. and instead of being uh what we see in europe the old the old universities being kind of the yeah. 
uh, keepers of the flame, so yeah. to speak, or the ones yeah. who preserve the memory, our most uh, you know cutting edge, or maybe that's the way to put it, uh, maybe that's the problem. Our, our most prestigious institutions are the ones most committed to breaking with the past. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, it, yeah. There is a, there is there is a bizarre trend, if you will, that entered in and it now has become a tradition in which the whole point of of kind of education is novelty um, and and how how novelty can kind of bear the burden um, of of being able to be foundational when you've knocked out every other kind of foundation and you don't believe in foundations. And it, it is it is very thin um, it goes nowhere. It's so boring. I mean, the whole CR, I mean, just the whole CRT trans, the whole thing becomes one big repetition of sheer boringness. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's no original thought allowed. Uh, <laughs> basically, it's all clerk work. And so yeah. what, what, what people are working on is uh, trying to deconstruct, you know, more and more obscure things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you, you know, but the odd thing is, one of the trends, it seems to me, in the university is the idea of interdisciplinary programs. Yeah. Where you bring people together from a bun or bunch of different fields and you study under them. And so you get this broad-based interdisciplinary approach to subject X. Yeah. But they don't do that in gen ed, which is where you really need it. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, I think it, you know, I think it's, it's, you know, long overdue to revisit what Cardinal Newman was up to with the idea of the university and the unification of knowledge. And I think to their credit, I think some of the figures like uh, John Milbank, Michael Hanby, Paul Tyson, those figures really get that until we get back to, to the, a Christian first philosophy and first truth, as the ground of a sound transcendent metaphysic, which is the unifying factor of all other knowledge. And then we start to build a natural philosophy from that to get a proper view of science within its range. That sets the you know, kind of groundwork for, for integrating those others so that we're not having science and sociology. We're actually having these things part of an, you know, if you will, an organic thread. That's an old, you know, that's an old 19th century way of putting it but at least has a more unified way of connecting these things. And, and I really think it, in my own life, I mean, what made all these other interests open up to me was my theological vision. I mean, once I saw how all these things fed into the robust richness of a creation that is just ready to, to manifest the glorification of God, um, then everything from the beetle walking and understanding how that works to someone, you know, figuring out how to turn a piece of wood into a house. I mean, everything has fascination about it. I, I have to admit, Tom, when you said a beetle walking, I got a picture of Abbey Road. But Paul Barefoot, right? Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. But, you know, I think the classical Christian school movement yeah. and things like New St. Andrews that are growing out of it mm -hmm. are attempts to move in this direction. I mm -hmm. think that's what you know. Right. That that's what they're about. They're they're trying to uh, to do a retrieval. Yeah. And I think it's picking up steam in uh, places that people might be surprised to learn it, it is uh, the charter school movement. Uh, mm -hmm. We see uh, 
interest there in classical education. Uh, and that, of course, means uh, public funding for these public schools, which are chartered. But um, because of the nature of charter schools, aren't permitted are permitted to pursue a different educational philosophies outside the sort of standard, you know, sort of model that is pretty ubiquitous. Um, when I think about this though, I also think that there's a kind of hands-on character to things that maybe even some of the people we've talked about don't possess. So when I think of what Sabine, you know, when you think about, he was actually doing scientific work uh, he was doing field research. He was doing the kinds of thing, things that are more uh, demanding physically even uh, and required a, a level of competence maybe that uh, you don't normally see in academic and, you know, circles. So like, I think yeah. I could, you know, a person who does possess that would be like Matthew B. Crawford, the guy who wrote shop classes, Soulcraft. Maybe he's an example of somebody sort of like this. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, I can just as a reminder uh, of the list of things Tony mentioned, he was also an amateur painter and iron worker. Yeah. The iron worker, iron worker. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Probably had a forge in the basement alongside his chemistry set. And well, hopefully it wasn't <laughs> in the basement. I mean, but, yeah. 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 Probably outside in the shed or. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, it is a point of trivia. Uh, medieval tower houses in Italy had the kitchen on the top floor. Right, which makes a lot Except of sense. If a fire was going to break out, it was going to break out in the kitchen. And if it's on the ground floor, the whole thing's a giant chimney. Right, right. So uh, where do we want to go with this, Glenn? I mean, it, it, you know, we've been struggling to find ways that maybe we could recover this approach in our time. Um, do you have any other thoughts on, on where this should take us? Well, one of the things that's worth noting about Sabine is that he did all of these things at a very high level, but in many ways, he also did them as an amateur. Yeah. His job was a vicar. Yeah. And so I think one of the things that we should consider is, you know, I talk about education because that's sort of my background. And I think for the kinds of things he did, education of a certain kind was essential. But I think that, that for the average person out there, there's no reason why you can't begin pursuing all kinds of odd interests. Just try them out and see how they work. Read about them. Get, get your hands dirty working on things. Um, play music. Yeah. Um, you know, do... You know, the, the problem that we have, I think is that our cell phones are ubiquitous. Yeah. Our computer is always on. And if it's not that, then we're streaming something on TV. Yeah. If you, now I'm getting into meddling, I know. But you, yeah. you, you can't recover this. You can't have a retrieval of this by living a modern lifestyle. You can't do it I talked about specialization in school. I'll talk about distractions in life. Yeah. You can't do it if you spend a couple of hours every night when you get home from work watching TV. You know, reading would move you in the right direction. Yeah. Uh, 
going out dancing with your wife, which my wife would love if I did. <laughs> that, that would be worthwhile. Um, taking up leather work, woodworking, <laughs> any of these kinds of things are much better use of your time than sitting in front of television. Well, it, I think... And related, you can do it. It is possible yeah. to do. I think related to that is our sense of what it means to have a calling. I think that some of us uh, use the language of calling and uh, interpret it in the same way that we think of specialization. So let's think about the Apostle Paul. I use him as an illustration uh, often, uh, you know, when it comes to this. Here is the first class intellect in antiquity, uh, spoke uh, more than one language, wrote in more than one language, uh, had a working knowledge of obviously, you know, his own tradition, but uh, even schools of thought outside it. We have evidence of that in the New Testament. But he was also a man who worked with his hands. And I imagine he excelled in the arts that we normally associate with the Jews, haggling and uh, make turning it a buck, <laughs> yeah. that kind of stuff. So this was a guy whose ability to provide for himself, and he makes a point of that in different points in his letters, I didn't take anything from you on purpose <laughs> so yeah. that I could freely you know, teach uh, without thought of my own needs. Um, and the reason he could do that is because he, he had skills. He could, he could yeah. actually take care of himself. And I don't know many pastors who think in those terms. I think most pastors that I'm familiar with uh, think of themselves as specialists. They think of themselves as people who, if they're going to have other things uh, that they're engaged in doing, that's going to take away from either the, the time that they think that they need to spend on their primary uh, calling or uh, might actually undermine their status as a pastor, you know, to, to actually, you know, work with their hands or whatever. They would never put it that way because I mean, yeah. we, uh, the egalitarian moment that we live in means that there are many things that you can think but can't say. Yeah. <laughs> and I think many pastors think that, but they would never say it. Yeah, and, I, and it, again, I guess it depends on you know who and and you know and and kind of I think you're right in terms of a gen, general trends. I mean, I know a lot of people that you know. I mean, some of a lot of people I find gravitate towards ministerial calling. Also, have a lot of they do a lot of study. They do a lot of service to you know the elderly, the poor. I mean, they're they're involved in a lot of that kind. So I know people that don't too. You know. They spend a lot of time just going out to eat and having business, you know, meetings. Um, um, and, and then but then you do find, you know, interesting. I know people in ministry that, you know, on the one hand, they're, you know, kind of full time work is, is you know, working on elevators uh, in, in big end hotels and their hands are on stuff. But they also have a passionate heart for serving. And and so. It is an odd, you know, you do find kind of an odd mix out there, but then you do have, yeah, the kind of professional class, you know, the demonization of ministry, as they used to say, um, where where it, it's it's kind of like ministry is an excuse for you not to do anything else, you know, um, even academically to, to push yourself to kind of know more than just the kind of popular trendy stuff, Um and, you know, and that does require work. I mean, uh, academic, the academic side, a lot of people don't think of that as well. When you, you, you're working through the rigors of classical thinking, for example, to put a check mark over your own, that's laborious. 
And a lot of people don't have, they don't want to waste the time doing that. They don't think they need to do it. And, you know, um, someone like St. Paul, I mean, he already had a lot of that in place. I mean, if, if, if our understanding of Paul is correct, you're talking somebody who had a lot of that in place by the time he was young. Um, and and then the developed work skills on top of it. Um, and so you're just really talking about an exceptionally gifted person as well. Um, but, but I think, yeah, I mean, what, you know, I mean, this whole, the holistic man is, you know, I, I think at least maybe, maybe it was the Renaissance, you know, where that notion of the Renaissance man tried to come back, but there is something about, about the well-rounded person, um, that, um, that I think we're all talking about in one way or the other Right. that, you know, it's kind of a lost, a lost figure. Yeah. You know how, how I'm not saying that you can do everything. Well, I think Glenn's point is right on. I mean, people need to start doing more. Right. Um, I, I, I kind of almost see it as a point of, of joy when I get this little note on my phone now that says you're, screen time is down by four hours this week. Um, cause I, I you know, similarly, I, the, um, Nicholas last once said he was a professor at Cambridge. He was a Roman Catholic thinker, but a very fascinating person. He used to say, you know, today theologians tend to be elderly figures and he's largely because it, it's takes that amount of time to digest the history of, of, of thought before you start having something to say, because right. there's a lot to, to 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 master and so if i'm spending all my time on this <laughs> it's not easy you know i have less to say <laughs> yeah so, so anyway uh we should wrap things up here anything you want to say as we conclude glenn um i think this guy really needs a biography um but uh un- until then uh you, you can look them up easily enough. Um, there, there are articles and things like that. Not a ton, but there's enough available. And I would suggest that that you look at him as sort of a challenge. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm as guilty of this as anybody else. All of us have got time that we could be used, using to live a much richer life than we do. Right. But right. instead, we, we turn into passive consumers of stuff other people have produced rather than producing things for ourselves. Right. Yeah. Well, on that note, why don't we uh, encourage folks to not only consume our content, which, by the <laughs> way, we're glad they do, <laughs> but produce their own and uh, get out and live a bit. Thanks for listening to the Theology Podcast. Uh, we really do appreciate the fact that you've made it all the way to the end of this episode. And if uh, the work we do is uh, encouraging to you, uh, you can be an encouragement to us. We have uh, people who support our work on an ongoing basis, either through the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, where people become members of the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network and designate the Theology Podcast as their their, their podcast of choice to support Uh, Or if you can go directly to our Patreon page and support us there. There are other ways to support us. You can go to our website. Uh, We appreciate all the letters we get. We get emails from around the world. uh, Lots of folks making comments about episodes, uh, you know, asking us for more material or some some resources on subjects that we've addressed. We, we're really grateful that people care enough about the things that we talk about on the show that, to reach out to us in that way. Anyway, that's enough for now. 
Um, there are links in the show notes to the things I've described. And um, we'll just say goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye now. The Theology Pubcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you enjoy the Theology Pubcast, you might enjoy one of our other podcasts, Got a Minute, featuring Larson Hicks and Pastor Rich Lusk. Rich theological discussion guaranteed to leave you edified.